You're listening to the City World Radio Network, high-definition digital radio broadcasting from the city to the world, www.cityworldradio.com. Good afternoon. Welcome to Intelligent Talk with Ralph McElvenny. Join us every Thursday at 5 p.m. on the City World Radio Network as we discuss topics in politics, art, and current events. Okay, well, welcome to IntelligentTalk.com. We're here with William Stadium. Um, he's a well-known author. He's published many interesting books. And I'm going to try to cover a few of the highlights with him today. Um, Mr. Stadium, thank you so much for coming on the program today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you very much. And it was so nice to speak to you, obviously, off the air um, last week. Um, I've read three of your books, and I want to talk about um, your Madame Claude book, um, the Frank Sinatra book, and the one on George Hamilton. But I also wanted to cover the Marilyn Monroe book and the book on King Fruk, because it's so interesting. I was able to skim those after we spoke as well. Could I just start with uh, the King Farouk book, if that's all right? Absolutely. May I just first, before I get into that, could I just briefly discuss your background? You obviously you have degrees from Harvard Business School and Harvard Law School, and you were at a major law firm in New York, and you transitioned to writing in, in what, the 1970s? Yes, in, in, the, uh, in the late 70s. I, I decided that law was not my chosen career, uh, and I wanted to be my own boss and explore wonderful, fascinating subjects like I did in school. I loved school. So this was the only way you could kind of be a student and somehow get paid for it. I still haven't really figured that out, but it, it's been a lot of fun. Well, yes, it's been, well, it's been a lot of fun reading the books, too. So um, King Farouk was your second book right after the book on the Southern Families of the South. Was that right? No, actually, the Marilyn Monroe book came before King Farouk. Oh, did it? Um, okay. Yes, it did. Well, then, um, maybe we could just start with the Marilyn Monroe book. I mean, um, you obviously you got Marilyn Monroe's housekeeper to speak. Is, is that right? That's correct. Uh, she was a fascinating character. She was sort of a, one of the unsung heroes of Marilyn's life. I had a, a friend of mine from college days who, uh, who uh, came up to me on, on Broadway, and he asked me for a loan. And he's a very rich boy. Uh, he, he wanted a loan. Of uh, $25,000. That was in the 70s, which was a lot of money. Of course. And I said, where do you think I would have 25? He said, well, you work at Sullivan and Cromwell, this famous firm. I said, not anymore. I'm a poor writer. And uh, he said, oh, well, that's even better. He said, uh, I've got something for you. And then, you know, then you can give me something. Because he was in gambling trouble. He was a rich boy, but he liked to gamble. Okay. So uh, his creditors... Uh, who were, you know, from the mafia, were, were leaning on him. So he, he was desperate. And he said, listen, I, my father's maid used to work for Marilyn Monroe. His father had a triplex apartment on, on Park Avenue. And, uh, and I said, no, oh, come on. I, I said, I'm, I'm doing really serious books. I, I said, I wouldn't be interested in a maid in Marilyn Monroe. What do I know about that? And he said, no, no, it's a great story. I said, oh, it's silly. I want to do serious stuff. Leave me alone. And he said, I need the money. I said, there are many other authors. Go find somebody and you'll get the money. In any event, I get a call a week later. From my, he finds out who my book agent is, and she said, you're the stupidest writer I've ever represented. I said, what do you mean? She said, you go meet that maid. You go and see her. 
I said, why? I'm not interested in maids. And she said, I'm interested in maids. Everyone is interested in maids, especially Marilyn's maid. There's only one of them. So to make a long story short, she was right. I went and met the maid. She had worked for Marilyn for many years. She was her best friend. They were a great story of uh, opposites attracting uh, Marilyn. They were both beautiful women. But the maid was Italian, and, and Marilyn was Marilyn. But uh, the, the maid had the life that Marilyn wanted, which was a husband, two children, happiness and stability. And, of course, Marilyn had the life the maid would have loved, which was glamour and fame and celebrity. And, you know, it's a great symbiosis, this friendship. And it made a great book, and it sold all over the world. And uh, the, 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 my friend got the largest finder's fee in publishing history up to that point. Wow. So everybody, everybody lived happily ever after. And what's and interesting, so the book, just briefly, she talks about DiMaggio and Sinatra, right? It's her two, two best, best loves, is that right? Well, actually, DiMaggio was the true love of her life. Sinatra was her best friend, but Sinatra was a, what you call a neat freak, and Marilyn was probably the messiest woman that ever lived. So they were, you know, basically ultimately incompatible, but, you know, they, 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 they seemed like a perfect match. You know, the most famous man and the most famous woman of their time. And uh, and they did. They were they were great friends, but marriage it would have never worked. And she, never worked. she questions the suicide of Marilyn. Is that is that correct? The maid did question that. Um, you know, she would be, she had been with Marilyn through many depressive moments. Marilyn used to like to. She lived in New York at four forty four East Fifty Seventh Street near Sutton Place, and sometimes she would get get up at night late. And she'd go to a bar that she'd put on a black wig and uh, dark glasses and dress in a dowdy way and to see if anybody would like her for herself and not her fame and look. And no one ever liked her. And every time that would happen, she would come home and take an overdose, not a deathly overdose, but she'd take sleeping pills. She'd get drunk on champagne, and she said, nobody loves me. And so it was possible that she might have committed suicide, but it, it just seemed too much because her life was on the upswing uh, at the time she she had re- relocated to California. Her maid was her New York maid, her Sutton Place maid. She had another housekeeper in Brentwood where she died. But the maid was very suspicious, and she was particularly suspicious of her last boyfriend, who was a uh, Mexican screenwriter who wanted Marilyn to give up her Hollywood career and come to Mexico and live with marry him and have another career. She'd become the most famous actress in Mexico and it would, of course, make him a big star in Mexico. And uh, she said no. And he had two other women in his life, his life who had died under bizarre uh, circumstances. And the, the thought was that, that maybe Marilyn might have been the third woman in that, in that chain. Do you have any theories on, just one, final question on the Monroe book, do you have any theories on how she met her end? Was it a Kennedy thing or something with that? Well, of course, she was very close to the Kennedys and Peter Lawford, and, uh, and they had a lot to hide because they were, you know, America's first family and devout Catholics and supposedly despite all what we know now, they kept every all their dalliances a secret. In fact, both Bobby and and John and Jack loved Marilyn in you know one way or another. Uh, you know, it was a can of worms. But who knows? Lots of strange things happened in those days. It was a time of assassinations. I mean, who would have guessed that they would have died? And so, who would have guessed that Marilyn would have died? So, you know, anything is possible. Exactly. Okay. If I could just turn you to the King Farouk book, and for people that don't know, King Farouk was the last, basically, king of Egypt. I believe he was uh, of an Albanian family that was put in power in large part by the French when they had some control over Egypt. Is that 
Well, the French and the Turks, it was, you know, it was basically his father was called Muhammad Ali, not the boxer, but that was, it was called the Muhammad Ali dynasty. And they were, uh, they were from Albania and there was a, a line from Macedonia. And it was, they were definitely not Egyptians. Uh, but, you know, he was the last king of Egypt. It came out of a dynastic tradition that really came from the Ottoman Empire. And, um, you know, and, and he lived like a king. Nobody, in the history of the world, lived higher and more glamorously than King Farouk. And in doing that book, I found five of his mistresses at different phases of his life, all of whom went on to great careers. One became uh, from every country. One one was uh, an American woman who was a star of the Bob Hope radio show, and she became a princess, Princess Hohenlohe. She married one of the great... Uh, Germanic dynasties, that, and they founded the Marbella Club in Spain. Another became a opera diva in Italy. Another became the top crime writer in, in uh, Sweden. The other became one of the top writers in England. Um, and the other became the inspiration for um, Durrell's uh, Justine, you know, in the Alexander Quartet. So there was certainly, he had good taste in women, and he was a very handsome man until he had an accident during World War II where it was a terrible head-on with a British truck, an occupying British truck, and suddenly he, his weight ballooned to double his size, went up from like 150 to 300 pounds, and he had this stereotype of being this awful fat man, and, and you know, people judge by appearances, but if they had judged by his earlier appearance, they would have thought he was a very dashing, regal monarch. Now, it, and he, he did a lot of things for Egypt. He got the British out. He was sort of a hero. To, to the Egyptians for, for standing up to the British after the war and getting them out and uh, because they controlled the Suez Canal and they were like an overlord in Egypt. And when he drove the British out of Egypt, unfortunately, America misjudged uh, Nasser, and they backed Nasser in his coup d'etat against Farouk, and Nasser hated America, and he got into the arms of the Russians, who built the Aswan Dam for him, and Egypt has been a mess ever since, which is a tragedy, because it's one of the great countries in the world, and certainly, historically, the most interesting place I've ever been. And just one theme of your book, I think I read that you thought he was more anti-British rather than anti-Israeli. Is, is, is that right? Absolutely. Well, one of it, one of his mistresses was 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 a, the one who was the inspiration for Justine. Was a beautiful Jewish woman who was one of the uh, sort of you know playgirls of, of international society during before and after the war. No, he all of his advisors were Jewish. He was as as ecumenical a king as you can imagine. I think that uh, things would have been very different had he continued in Egypt and. Uh, than with Nasser, who was against everything. Did he did did he participate though in the attack upon Israel in forty seven and forty eight? There was there was a war, and it was you should really read the book because it's a very nuanced and complicated thing. <laughs> he didn't want to do it. And I see. He was sort of swept in with with what was going on with, with you know with, with with his overlords at that that point, and okay. that was one of the reasons that. He really wanted to get the British out of Egypt. And the, one the final, British were no friends of Israel at that point. One final question. He was poisoned in the mid-60s. And Do you know who poisoned him? What your theory on the, the suspicion was that it was Nasser's secret service. Uh, the rumors in Egypt, and Egypt is a country of rumors, was that, you know, that things weren't going well for Nasser. He certainly alienated the Americans with his embrace of Russia and communism and the, the thought that Nasser got, and he was a very paranoid person, that, that Farouk was, gonna make, was coming back. And so the best way to make sure he didn't come back was to kill him. And so he was poisoned in Rome on a very 
rich dish of lobster thermidor. I don't know whether you remember that dish, but it's this incredibly turn-of-the-century dish of Diamond Jim Brady where they put lots of cream and cognac and all kinds of stuff in lobster, and you could put poison in there, you'd never taste it. And he found the one French restaurant in Rome where he liked to eat, because, and then he embraced his size. And he was gorging himself with lobster thermidor with his beautiful mistress, the Italian opera diva, diva and he died immediately. Okay. All right, well, thank you for briefly touching on those two, and I will go back and read those books carefully. I want to turn, if I could, to the George Hamilton book, Don't Mind If I Do, which I did read, and it's just such an interesting book because it seems to me he sort of is an adage of maybe last guys, nice guys don't finish last, perhaps they finish first, because he's someone who, well, he wasn't a super respected actor, certainly a respectable working actor, but he had a, a fascinating life, and it seems to be a lot of that was based on his charm and uh, his style and his, his gentleness. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that. George has one of the great, charming personalities, one of the most charismatic personalities. He's the last of a breed, sort of uh, the gentleman movie star. They don't make that anymore. I mean, uh, he's a very old-fashioned, courtly guy, but with a very dry, witty sense of humor. And he knows everybody in the world, and everybody loves him. And you know, it's a great book with great anecdotes, and he's an amazing storyteller. You know, he was never taken seriously in Hollywood because he was light. He was, you know, he was one of the last of the studio contract players. And, uh, you know, he had that sort of Cary Grant charm, but he was coming up in a, I mean, in, in the, he was coming up in a, in a generation of anti-heroes, where you had people like Pacino and Hoffman and De Niro and stuff, and they were all dead seriously and pretty sour and, you know, not, you know, not conventional. And George was a kind of Palm Beach story kind of character. He was very old line wasp. I mean, he was from Tennessee, but he, he had that southern courtliness that, that really set him apart from anybody else in Hollywood, but he, he was just a man out of time. So his charm was lost on an alienated generation of 60s moviegoers, but he did have an enormous uh, hit with this movie, um, Zorro, The Gay Blade, and Love at First Bite, both of those things. And, and he used his comedic charm, and he finally found his level, and it, it really worked for him. One of the things that I learned from your book, which I didn't even know, is that uh, he had gone to my high school, Browning, on um on in the sixties. Absolutely. 60s. I didn't realize you had gone there, but that's exactly where he went and, and he he had his best friend was General MacArthur's son. I know it. I didn't realize MacArthur had gone there. Arthur MacArthur had gone there as well, which led me to my question, as you know, Arthur MacArthur has become sort of a recluse. He was in that um, old hotel they tore down to build a building on Central Park West, and then he apparently moved down to the village under an assumed name. But has George Hamilton ever tried to contact him? Have you ever tried to do anything with Arthur MacArthur? It'd be fascinating. No, actually, I would have loved to. And, and George said he hadn't seen him or didn't even know where he was for many years, so he'd been out of touch with him. Yeah, it, it's a nice portrait you paint of General MacArthur, too, basically being very gentle with the son and having dinners with the two of them at the Waldorf. And it's a... Uh, quite an interesting, fairly normal family um, father he was to, to, to both of them, or at least to... No, uh, he was, he, look, he was a great man, and he, uh, as a father, he certainly didn't fade away. He was, he was a good father. And George, it was one of the thrills of his life, you know, getting to meet him and, and get to know him. But, you know, he was, he was running in that kind of company his entire life. You know, he was the best friend of Imelda Marcos. I mean, he was, he, he's like a, the zelig of high society. He was an interesting guy. I, I, what, you know, I happened to have gone to the Philippines right after Mar- Marcos was overthrown, and I saw Malacayang Palace, and I saw the shoes of Imelda Marcos, but 
he says in the book he didn't see any evidence of that, but but maybe he um didn't see her closet. I mean, I, I definitely they said she had something like seven thousand pairs of shoes, and I definitely remember seeing at least you know, some signs of her opulence when I was there in '87. But that was well, the, I know in, in a book I'm doing about uh, Harry Winston, the jeweler, uh, Ronald Winston, the son of Harry Winston, said uh, that Imelda was one of her great, their greatest, uh, three great clients that the, the made Harry Winston a multi-billionaire. There were three that did it, and it wasn't Liz Taylor in Hollywood. It was the Saudi royal family, it was the Sultan of Brunei, and it was Imelda Marcos. And he said he never saw more shoes in his life. Interesting. It also, it, what he t- talks about, he's, I didn't realize how, how impressive a person Marcos was, I mean, as a top lawyer and as a resistance fighter, and he, he comes across well in a way that is not often brought out in terms of, like, w- when he may have gotten sick and old and, and um, his failing powers, but maybe perhaps at a different time he was an impressive person. That's I, le- I glean that, too, from your book. If I could just turn to another one of his friends, Colonel Parker, who was Elvis Presley's famous manager. And what's interesting about your book on this is he comes across, if you read Elvis Presley biographers or people writing about Elvis, quite poorly. They say he was basically money-hungry. He took 50% of everything Elvis had, and he left Elvis, you know, obviously promoted him well, but but basically controlled Elvis to, a, in some ways, a, a bad way. But uh, once again, George Hamilton has a different view of it. And one of the stories you relate is how he was owed $100,000 at the International Hilton performing there, and Sammy Davis, for free, uh, augmented the performance, and then Colonel Parker basically used his power to force him to, to get paid, even though he hadn't sold the tickets. And that was an interesting story, I thought. Well, George, yeah, but the great thing about George Hamilton is he's such a positive guy. He, he likes to find the good part of everybody. I mean, that's part of his charm and uh, his gentility. And that was what was fun about writing this book, because you'd read about people who you thought were ogres like Colonel Parker, and you'd see the good side of them. And I think a lot of people, and most people do have a good side if you're willing to look for it. Do you think maybe George Hamilton brought out the good in people and that was just people related well to him? I mean, obviously, Colonel Parker would ask him basically just to take care of his wife, have dinner with her occasionally because she had dementia, you write in the book, and, um, and basically occasionally drive him to Palm Springs. But otherwise, he didn't really ask very much of George Hamilton, did quite a bit for him, it seemed, and, and gave him great advice. Well, that's what a gentleman does. George is just a classic gentleman, and he, he is that way. Right, right. And also, like you mentioned, his connection with Cary Grant. They were both, as you said, sun worshippers, and uh, they would both go up, be in the studio back lots with their um, their thing on their neck to make the sun shine brighter, and they sort of bonded over that, and it's a very nice portrait of Cary Grant as well um, in this book, I think. Yeah, well, I wish, you know, the, the age of Cary Grant is gone. We don't have Cary. I mean, I guess George Clooney is the closest thing we have to that now, but I think if, if, um, if George had come on in a different era, where, where you know, sort of slickness and smoothness and old-fashioned charm was appreciated, he might have been one of the biggest stars in Hollywood. You mean you say if he was more appreciated uh, for what he yeah, represents? Yeah, he just came along at an odd time, because he came along at a time where America was more embracing alienation than glamour. Glamour was out. Right, they wanted Pacino and Brando and people like that, you mean? Right, I mean, the, you know. They, they, were, they, were, they were rebels, and George was not a, not a rebel. Interesting. So at a different time, he could have perhaps been another Cary Grant. I think so. Yeah, it's, and, and the level of detail, like when he goes to Rome and he shows that person, I forget who it was, but he shows someone around Rome, takes him to all of his tailor shops and the, the various restaurants. He seems to have an encyclopedic knowledge of almost every major city in Europe in terms of what to do and where to go. That was also an amazing thing from someone who wasn't from that life to just develop that. Right, right. Now he, but, you know, but he loved the high life. He embraced it, so he was the kind of guy who would find out what to do. And then, of course, he'd share it with his friends. 
Right. Um, and also you talk about he hired Frank Sinatra's butler at one point, and I want to get to that book, Mr. S, too, but he said that all Frank Sinatra's butler wanted to do basically was uh, wear cashmere sweaters with a ring around his uh, you know, sweater and just talk by the pool and, and not really cook or do anything. And uh, that was sort of an interesting uh, thing. I didn't realize that. I don't know if he was that way with Frank Sinatra, but he certainly... He was the same way with Sinatra. He was, okay. Sinatra, you know, George Jacobs was one of the great characters, too, and he was, he was even cooler than Sinatra, so Frank just liked having him around, and he was he was he, he could pick up women better than Sinatra, so he was so charming no woman could resist him. And I think that's why George, you know, who is that way is himself, uh, embraced uh, George George Hamilton, embraced George Jacobs, Frank Sinatra. You know, you didn't hire you didn't hire George to do work. You hired George to, for charm. But in his day, he was a great cook, and I remember. Uh, getting to know him and he was one of the great Italian cooks and that's why Frank Sinatra's mother loved, loved, loved George Jacobs because he, he could make Sicilian food as well as she could and that was not easy for a black guy from New Orleans. Absolutely interesting. Uh, do you do you still keep in touch with um, George Hamilton? Are you still in, in touch with him? I to- haven't seen George for a couple of years uh, but I'd be happy to see him if I run into him on the streets in Beverly Hills. I think he's done off, but he's done Broadway shows and off Broadway. He's always traveling somewhere, and uh, he's a very popular guest around the world. Okay, well, thank you for this. I just want to just turn now to uh, your book on Madame Claude. And for those that don't know, Madame Claude was essentially ran a high class escort service in Paris in the fifties and sixties, and she came to the U.S. had some tax problems, and um, and then sort of made her way back to France. But she, in her day, she had essentially every major person in the world you can think of, from the Giovanni Andelli to Gaddafi. The CIA apparently used her when they were doing the Paris peace talks in the early seventies uh, with the Vietnamese. I mean, it's such an interesting. Um, sort of a hidden world that uh, you bring out. I just want to, you actually had gotten to know Madame Claude when she was living in her tax exile days in Los Angeles, right in the early 80s? Yeah, she was one of the most interesting women I ever met. Um, I, had, I was living in New York, but a friend of mine, just starting my writing career, and uh, a friend of mine said, I've got the hottest book in the world. Um, his father, who was, they were living in France, but relocated to Beverly Hills, uh, had been a friend of Madame Claude in Beverly Hills, and now, I mean, in, in Paris, and now she was relocated in Beverly Hills. He said, I can introduce you for a, a giant, another giant finder's fee. After, after the Marilyn Monroe book, I was known for my big finder's <laughs> fees. So, uh, so that, I got to come out, I flew out to Beverly Hills and had lunch with her at Mon Maison, which turned out to be a, you know, several months series of, of endless lunches around the, the glamour restaurants of, of Hollywood. And I met every movie star and every mogul and every, uh, every agent because they, oh, she, was, it, it, she was more popular than Marilyn, Marilyn Monroe, I mean, because she had the beautiful women. And so everyone kissed her hand and kissed her ring, and she was the queen of Hollywood for the several years that she was here. I, but she, well, she came in, in exile from France because uh, the, the Giscard d'Estaing, who was the, uh, the president of France at the time, uh, was in a kind of romance with one of her girls. It didn't work out, and it became a scandal. So the way to repair that was to arrest her for tax evasion. Prostitution in France was illegal, so they couldn't get her for that. But they could get her for tax evasion. So even though she had an empire in Europe of of people like Agnelli and the kings, uh, you know, the king of Spain and, you know, the J. Paul Getty in England and all the top, you know, sort of tycoons in England and the, the Krupps and the Thiessens and the, 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 the oligarchs of Germany and the, and the Arcos and Onassis. She also had 
all of Hollywood. So she said, well, I'll, she put her empire in Paris in the hands of one of her lieutenants, and she moved to Beverly Hills where things were safe for a while. And, you know, she catered to Hollywood. Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating—I mean, at her height, she probably had so what, several hundred people she was— uh, About 400 women on her roles, all of whom were like supermodels. This, this was before the era when, uh, you know, I think what her name was—what uh, was her name? Um, Linda Evangelista, the supermodel, said, I don't get out of bed for less than 10000 a day. This was before supermodels made that kind of money. The only way they could make that kind of money was to, getting, was to get in bed for $10,000 a day, and that was through Madame Claude. So every top model of the 60s and 70s and 50s, too, who worked in Europe got to know Madame Claude, not so much for the money, but to meet the most important people in the world, many of whom married these girls. That's right. That was the ultimate goal, right, of Madame Claude, to get these women to marry very wealthy men. Right? Absolutely. The money was, was incidental, but marriage was the, was the end goal. When, when, when you wrote about, and she talked about her stories, and I'm sure some of it was probably embellished, but do, do you think it's true that she was in a concentration camp for being Jewish and was deported and that it was all... That was all co- you know, I didn't inspect her wrist, but this, this, uh, this guy I knew, Taki, who got in a lot of trouble with Donald Trump recently, um, who did know a lot of things, he said he had met her through Porfirio Ruberosa, the great Dominican. You know, sort of playboy, the Dominican right. polo playing playboy who had been married to the two richest women in the world, Barbara Hutton and Doris Duke in sequence. Um, uh, he knew Madame Claude very well. It spoke well for Madame Claude that here was a man who could have any woman and did, but he was one of the biggest clients of Madame Claude as was Frank Sinatra and all these other supposed great ladies' men of the world. But uh, he had seen her arm, and she did have tattoos from Auschwitz. Could you tell the story, just the one story about the, the President Kennedy story? Because President Kennedy goes to see Madame Claude. He wants a Jackie Kennedy lookalike, which, you know, very high-class type girl from a, from a good family. He goes there with his doctor, Dr. Feelgood, Max Jacobson, who was injecting him with those amphetamines, basically, that quelled his back pains. And he, he told his brother, Robert, I don't care if it's horse piss, but it works, essentially. And, and could you just tell that story about how he met uh, Madame Claude? He rings on the wrong doorbell. It's kind of a funny story. Oh, yeah, it was a very funny story. I mean, well, her reputation had preceded her because his father, Joe Kennedy, had been a client. Uh, his best friend, Frank Sinatra, was a client. Uh, everybody knew was, uh, he knew was a client, but he wasn't, hadn't been a client. So he, he was going to Paris, and once the idea was in his head, he couldn't, he couldn't get rid of it. And so his press secretary, Pierre Salinger, who was half French, and sounded all French and obviously spoke French, he's put him to the task of setting up a, a date, an assignation with one of these girls. Now, it's kind of crazy because... He was coming on a state visit with Jackie, uh, and he was only in Paris for three days, and he was on his way to Russia to meet with, I mean, actually to Vienna to, but to have a, a Putin-esque conference like Trump had with Khrushchev. Right. And, but he wanted to be in top form, and the best way he could be in top form was to be totally relaxed, and the best way he could be totally relaxed with, was with a Madame Claude girl. I think he and Jackie were not having particular, any kind of relations at that point, so he, he, needed, he needed some some you know, TLC to, to feel better. So in any case, he, Pierre Salinger, set up the rendezvous, but it was a part of Paris uh, sort of on the cusp of it. Uh, you, know, you probably know Paris, but if your readers don't, there are two arrondissements near the Champs-Élysées. One is the 8th and one is the 17th. And there, there's streets called the Rue de Courcelles and the Boulevard de Courcelles, but they're two completely different streets. Um, they're not far from each other, but he had the address that he had with the wrong Corsell. He, he goes up and he walks up these steps, his back is killing him, which is true, 
five flights of steps. He knocks on the door, and it's a little old lady because the door's not. He said, "What is this? It's the wrong corsel, so they have to find the right corsel." And it was a, it's like a, it's almost like a French farce and a comedy of errors. And he he didn't have a telephone. He didn't have you know didn't have cell phones in those days. So he had to go to a to a. Um, a bar to a cafe and get a jeton, which is a token that you put in the in, in the uh, in the phone machines. It was very primitive in 1961 when this happened. There were very few phones in France, and and actually, Madame Claude rode the cusp of technology in, in, to invent the call girl in France uh, as you know, sort of simultaneous with the rise of the telephone in France. But that's another story. Kennedy did eventually find the right address, make it to the girl. Dr. Jacobson came with him. He waited outside. The girl was a Givenchy fit model, and Givenchy was Jackie's favorite designer. So it was a kind of symbolic revenge on Jackie, if he really intended that. But he had a wonderful time, and he, he was the trip went incredibly well, and he had a wonderful summit with Khrushchev, which was obviously better than the one that Donald Trump just had with Putin, at least in the eyes of the public. Exactly. Isn't it amazing how a president of the United States and a foreign country could walk around essentially almost by himself? I mean, you think about how things have changed today. Be, there'd be a thousand people with someone like that now. And I think, I think he also snuck out and saw Spartacus, too, I believe, when he was in the White House as well. So he had a history of doing that, I guess. And uh, Well, he got away with things. And I think a lot of it had, well, the press was different. It wasn't, you didn't have this whole TMZ mentality that people are watching you 24-7. But I think... And those kind of dalliances like Kennedy had with the Madame Claude girl were looked, uh, you know, the press may have known about it, but they looked, they looked aside, they looked away. So that was private matters. Like, like it would still be in France. I mean, they still have this, this uh, wall between people's private lives and their public lives. We don't. Whatever is private is public and vice versa. Um, it was not private. It's never private here anymore. But no, it's amazing what he got away with. But he had a wonderful time, and he became friends with Madame Claude, and uh, he, you know, that really made her his his clientele because it established her with all the foreign governments. They said if she could take care of Kennedy, she can take care of us. <laughs> right. It was interesting about Madame Claude. I think you write about a few people who had who had dinners with her, and they were very honored as clients to be invited for, for dinner. But for the most part, it seemed that she kept her distance, and maybe that explains why at the end when she died, I think you said there were only five people at the funeral. Most of them were like hairdressers. I mean, she seemed all to... five hairdressers were, were not even a funeral. It was a, a cremation at the... Uh, nursing home that had her body her daughter didn't even attend the service just five hairdressers why is she like hairdressers she she she'd always like looking good so i guess if she was going to have five people there she'd be happy to have five hairdressers. <laughs> why is it do you think that someone like that who knew everyone in the world had you know thousands of contacts would end up essentially dying alone and people would turn their back on her like that and not well you know it, it was like a secret forbidden thing you know it was just it was one of the best-kept secrets in the world. It was a secret for the rich and famous and the high and the mighty. And, and, and luck, I mean, what happened was she died at 92, so she had a pretty long, great life. And most of the crowned heads and tycoons and, and movie stars had died off that, that were, were part of her clientele. So there was nobody to attend to her. It wasn't something that they would pass on to their families. They said, look after Madame Claude for us when we're gone. You know, I, that, that was a legacy that was not passed on. And we will never see the likes of her again. She was one of a kind. Did, did you find her, I mean, when you got to know her, did you just find her a fascinating, endearing person? I wouldn't, I wouldn't call her endearing. She was tough. She was like a, a banker. She was very serious. and uh, But she, she had great wit, and she had a, you know, she was very sly and had amazing anecdotes, like nothing you've ever heard. Probably the best in the world. So 
Second, I mean, she knew she knew she knew what went on behind closed doors more than anyone else. Wow. Second most successful person they said self-made in France after Coco Chanel, right? I would say I would yeah. say that. Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating, fascinating world you bring out. And um, just if I could turn now to your book on uh, Frank Sinatra, Mr. S, written by George Jacobs, who we talked about earlier. In, in one hand, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting um, you know, thing about Frank Sinatra being a decent person in terms of like that he goes to South Africa with Jacobs and he insists that he stays in the hotel with him, that, that he's not going to uh, partake in the segregation. In the same way, I think when Sammy Davis Jr. was in Las Vegas, he said, no, Sammy Davis is going to be allowed in the casinos or I'm not going to play there. In other words, he forced an integration, at least for his friend Sammy Davis. But on the other hand, he could be very cruel, and he played a, a cruel joke on him. Where I remember he sort of abandoned him in Israel. I mean, could you talk about what the contradiction, sort of how he treated Jacobs and what well, Jacobs— I mean, I think, I think you know, Frank Sinatra was politically totally incorrect. I mean, I was sort of like Donald Trump, even worse so. I mean, he loved George Jacobs like a brother you know, when they were getting along until George was, was accused of having an affair with Mia Farrow, which humiliated Frank, and that was the— the end of their wonderful friendship for 20 years. But uh, he he did love George, and he loved Sammy, and, you know, he, they were all entertainers, and they were they were a brotherhood. It wasn't black or white or color or anything. It was, you know, we're just people. However, he was the most racist guy you could ever imagine in terms of the way he spoke. He called George Spook. That was his nickname for him. And, and and George, who was very proud of whoever he was, he had been, you know he was a, an aide to admirals. He had you know a real spit and polish thing. You know they just accepted it in those days. I mean, you know, and Frank and Frank and Dean and the Rat Pack. I mean, if I can't even repeat the words because I I I'd, I'd be embarrassed to say it today. You can't say those words today. That's all that came out of their mouth. Every word was politically incorrect. So it sounded bad. And you know, but, but Frank underneath it all wasn't. He wasn't motivated by, I mean, he had racial stereotypes. He wasn't motivated by that. He was motivated by friendship and love for these guys. But he just talked dirty, had an awful mouth, and it should have been washed out with soap. But then he wouldn't have been Frank Sinatra, so who knows? He saw himself as an underdog, I guess, who I guess it was, he was allowed to say those things because he was basically, at least in his own mind, you know, an underdog, sort of an anti-establishment figure, and those were endearing things. I, I think he, Jerry Lewis said he always called him, hey, Jew, when talking to Jerry Lewis. And so and Jerry Lewis said, I love Frank Sinatra for that. So I guess he did have this odd way of relating with people, and for him he looked at it in terms of endearment, I guess. And I think they all related to each other. You know, if, if he called Jerry Jerry Jew, uh, Jerry probably called him Dago. I mean, <laughs> that was just the way things were in those days. And right. That was, I mean, this was the days, you know, and the last day, the end of those days, where people like Don Rickles and Joan Rivers and stuff, none of those people would be accepted as comedians today because they said, that isn't funny anymore. What? And uh, so the humor has changed and camaraderie has changed and language has changed. It's... Uh, it's a brave new world that we're in now. Was Ava, Frank was Frank was a good guy to his friends, and nobody who knew him said he wasn't. Was Ava Gardner his, the love of his life? He was obsessed with Ava Gardner. He really, really loved Ava. Why Gardner. was that? Just because of her looks? But she was more in love with George than she was with Frank. Uh, Ava Gardner was from my state. I'm from North Carolina, and she was from a town not far from mine called Smithfield. And you know, George reminded, and he was George was from New Orleans, very southern, and and Ava just could relate to him far better than she could relate to Frank. But Frank never got jealous about George and Ava, and he was deeply jealous 
of George and Mia. That drove him crazy, even though he wasn't even in love with Mia. He couldn't get along with her at all. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you about. Obviously, um, he dances with Mia Farrow. Uh, Frank Sinatra finds out about that, and then essentially 100% cut off, and just 100% and so quickly, so coldly. It was just, I think he sees him later on, and George Jacobs sort of breaks down crying. Frank Sinatra says, it'll be okay, something like that. But essentially, zero contact after that. It just seems... No, over. I mean, look, when Frank, when Frank said, you're dead, you're dead. I mean, that was over. But, I mean, it was all because of Frank. Frank had probably the biggest ego in history, and he didn't like being humiliated. And the fact that George was photographed dancing with Mia at the Daisy, uh, which was the, the disco of Beverly Hills, in in that era and it was written up by rona barrett on all the gossip pages of america and frank you know that george and mia dancing you know at the daisy now the worst thing you could ever be caught doing and so frank said nobody makes frank sinatra look bad even my best friend and so he cut him off and never spoke to him again and george really never he worked for george hamilton he worked for you know sort of other famous people but he never got over it it's sort of amazing how, how sort of uh, Mia Farrell described as kind of like having an androgynous look, and some person calls Frank Sinatra a fag or something, or, or something like that, or talking about his relationship with Mia Farrell, which she seemed so attractive to me. I didn't necessarily... Well, uh, she was very gamine and beautiful, but she was... If you look at her and Ava Gardner, Ava Gardner and Marilyn, who were, you know, sort of pure, voluptuous femininity, and Mia Farrell was of the Twiggy school, and... Um, you know, Frank was an old-fashioned guy, but he was sort of pressured to marry Mia. Uh, by he, he, Frank, Frank had a, a social climbing aspect to him, and some of his best friends, the people he really looked up to, were people like Claudette Colbert and Rosalind Russell, and some of these people were considered Hollywood royalty and high class, and they were all friends with Mia's mother, and they thought, you know, Frank, you should marry Mia. That would be good. Um, and so to, to, to be in their good graces and to be socially accepted, he said, okay, I'll marry Mia. And, you know, what was not to like on paper, I mean, she was very beautiful, and she was 30 years old, younger than he was, and, but it was a disaster. It was one of I, after finishing this book on Sinatra with his, his George Jacobs, did you come across, in the end, liking Sinatra, or just sort of having just an interesting character who's allowed to get along with stuff that maybe the average person would not be because he's Frank Sinatra? Well, I had met Sinatra. I mean, he was old by the time I met him. And, you know, he was, you know, an, an iconic person and obviously intimidating. And he wasn't in the greatest mental state, so I obviously didn't see the best of Sinatra. Now, at the end of the book, I loved George Jacobs, and I was fascinated and felt I'd learned something about Sinatra. Right. But I would have been afraid, afraid to be friends with him because I thought that if I said the wrong word, it would end. I mean, he, he was very fickle. Right, right, right. Um, could I just give you a chance to um, to give you a website, please, so people can who want to know more about your books and can can go to the your website? Uh, could you just mention it? Sure. It's uh, it's my it's just my name, William Stadium S T A D I E M is in Mary at a uh, dot com dot com, and you can see all my books and my sorted articles from everywhere from Playboy to Tatler in London to Harper's and Queen to Vanity Fair and. There's a lot of fun stuff there. There's a lot of fun stuff. It's very interesting, and I, I, I love learning about it. And just as a final, uh, before we wrap up, could you tell me you, you, what you're working on now? You're working on a book on Harry Winston? Yeah, I've been working on this uh, long-term project about Harry Winston, uh, the, you know, the world's greatest jeweler. And it's a, it's a family story about, uh, it's a Cain and Abel story about these two, these two brothers who inherited the greatest business in the world but could not get along. Right. And... Uh, you know, families, but you would know. 
So it's, <laughs> it's a fascinating story. And I'm also working on a new project in England about a successor to the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's a historical, true, true life Da Vinci Code. But I'm in the early days with that. So yes, me too. Well, I walk by Harry Winston almost every day, so I'm constantly reminded of it. And uh, obviously what he did was amazing. It represents elegance and beauty, and um, it it was amazing what he accomplished. So I'm sure it's a fascinating story. Well, thank you so much uh, for coming on today. I I appreciate your time, and uh, thank you very much for talking with me. Ralph, you're on a wonderful show, and I'm glad you exist for us. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. Nice to talk to you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye served honorably in our nation's armed forces and you're looking for a way to continue serving your fellow veterans in your community, then join AMVETS. Each year, AMVETS members volunteer millions of hours at VA healthcare facilities from coast to coast, helping to improve the lives of their fellow veterans through the VA Voluntary Services Program. AMVETS posts and departments also participate in a wide variety of community service projects, ranging from Americanism in our schools to supporting the Special Olympics and Boy Scouts of America. If you no longer wear the uniform today, you can still serve through the AMVETS by joining today at AMVETS.org. Hi, I'm Janice Ian. Do you remember how excited you were at the start of summer every year and how the summer just started to drag on after a few months and you couldn't wait to get back to school, see your old friends, make new friends, get new books and a new locker and a clean slate? Well, you should have been excited about music class, too, because that was a special room where you went to sing, perform with your friends, and learn all kinds of interesting stuff about great composers, instruments, different kinds of music and songs. We remember our music teachers because they were so passionate about helping us learn to love music. They helped to spark a love for listening to notes and voices and rhythms that continues to enrich our lives even today. I bet your kids feel the same way about music class. Ask them. And make sure they get involved with music in school and in their lives. A PSA brought to you by MENC, the National Association for Music Education, and the National Anthem Project, the campaign to restore America's voice through music education. Music, part of a sound education. Today's entertainment has been brought to you in part by Calito's Restaurant. Calito's specializes in Portuguese cuisine. In addition to these delicacies, Calito's offers pasta, steaks, seafood, and chops. A full-service bar includes wines, beers, and spirits to complement your meal. Calito's offers casual ambiance at the bar or their dining room. Galitos also has a private banquet room for social events with a party package to accommodate your budget. Galitos also offers seasonal cafe seating. Galitos is located at 29 Elm Avenue in Mount Vernon, New York, conveniently located across from the Mount Vernon East train station. You can call